So how many of you, when you were young, lived with this reality? When Labor Day came around, your father used that as an excuse for you to work harder. Anybody? No? There's nobody in here that when Labor Day came, mom and dad were like, you know, we were thinking, well, it's a vacation. And your, your dad was like, no, get out there and, and do some more. That wasn't me. We camped on Labor Day. I don't know what you guys did, but we camped on Labor Day. Every Labor Day, every Memorial Day. It was so weird. Was it weird for anybody else that we just had the running of the Indianapolis 500? I mean, that's supposed to happen months ago on Memorial Day, and I'm at my mom's house, and they're running the Indianapolis 500, and I'm like, well, that's just stupid. <laughs> Memorial Day marked the end of the school year. Labor Day marked the beginning of the school year when I was growing up, and, and it was a day of camping. And people would try to tell me what Labor Day was all about, and I would be like, well, that's nice, but it's the day I get to go camping. And it's when school started again. You see, this is what happens. We know what Labor Day is because I don't know how many sermons you've heard on this, but, but uh, this isn't a sermon about Labor Day, by the way. But it is a sermon about getting away from the original purpose of things. It is a sermon about getting away, getting away from why things originally happened. And I know, I've studied it, Labor Day is, is all about the fact that in America we honor the working class people. That that's what America is founded upon. People that get up every day and go to work. People that get up every day and teach our kids. People that get up every day and go into the steel mills and, and work. People, farmers that get up every day and take care of the fields so that we can eat. We honor that in America. And so we set a day aside where we said to all of those who labor, you don't have to come in and labor today. We want to honor the labor that you do all the other days of the year on this day. So it is the day that we have set aside in America that said we appreciate the fact that in America we're hardworking people. But it turned in for me to, hey, that's when I get to go camping. I want to say to you that we have done many of the same things in the church. And I want to take just a couple minutes this morning and maybe turn that back. The same way that we need to do every once in a while for things like Labor Day or even Christmas. Christmas sometimes becomes that time when, when we frenetically uh, shop for presents and we forget that it's about the birth of Christ. And so it's the job of the church to remind the nation what Christmas is all about. Because left unchecked, it's just a day that we buy presents. We watched a movie two Saturdays ago called The Pilgrim's Progress. Right out here in the parking lot of the church. And in that animated movie, if you haven't seen it, it's a fun movie. I'd recommend that you go see it. In that movie, it's got a young man by the name of Christian. Go figure. This is John uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan was in jail over in England, and he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, um, where he basically 
gives us the story of a man who has given his life to Christ, feels this great uh, need to get to where God is. And so it's all about his journey to get there. Great movie. I, I would highly recommend it, especially this animated version of it. It's a lot of fun. But in that movie, Christian is going to meet many people. We baptized now in the last four weeks of this church <laughs> tons of people. The reality is when we baptize, what we're doing is we're putting people on a path towards God. So the Pilgrim's Progress is all about what does that journey look like and what should it look like? Well, I'm going to preach a, a series of sermons, not in a row. It's not like this week, next week. You'll get tired of that. But I'm going to have a series of sermons that are based on this pilgrim's progress. Because this pilgrim named Christian is going to try lots of things to get to God's house, the celestial city. He's going to try all kinds of things. Well, today on the road to the celestial city where he's trying to get to heaven. You know what all this, right, this symbolism means. Christian's trying to get to heaven. He meets a man in the world in John Bunyan's book called The Pilgrim's Progress named Worldly Wisdom. And, and here's Christian's question. Well, how do I get to the celestial city? How do I get to heaven? Is that not a question that has to be answered by every Christian? Is that not a question that you have? How do I get to heaven? There's a man that's going to come up to Jesus. And he's going to say, good master, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? What do I have to do to get where God's at? Worldly wisdom's going to say, well, I'll tell you. There is a village up ahead that can help you with that very thing. In that village, you're going to meet a man named Mr. Legality. And you're going to meet another man who is the son of Mr. Legality called Morals. If you'll just go and make your home in the village of legality and morality, you won't have anything to worry about. Because you can get to the celestial city by living in that village. Well, how easy is that? It's, it, boy, this just started. You see, this is at the beginning of the book. This is at the beginning of the story. The world has said... You, you know what this means, right? The world has said to us, you want to make it where God is. You want to do what God wants you to do. There's an easy way to do that. We've got laws and we've got morality. And that's what God expects out of you. Did any of you learn that in your Christian upbringing? Just be good. And so Christian thinks this is a great idea. One village, two men, and they'll be his guides. I'll just go and learn what's legal, according to God. I'll just go and learn what's moral, and I'll just do those things 
and I'll reach the celestial city. So Christian builds his life. And I'm going to tell you that there are a lot of Christians, that's us, that have built their lives on all I have to do is the legal thing and the moral thing. Well, let me tell you what morality is. All right, here's the preaching moment. Morality simply means that you do what's acceptable. How often does that change? If you're going to live in the village of legality and morality, then what you're going to do is base your life on what's acceptable. Oh, but we're Christians. So that means we're looking for what's acceptable to God. And of course, God told us what that was in his book, right? And so now you've got to find the person that tells you, according to God, what's acceptable to God. And there are as many versions of that as there are people in the world that read God's word. So who in the world gets to tell you what's acceptable or not acceptable to God? If you're going to live in the village of morality, who gets to tell you what's acceptable? Well, in that village for Christian, in that book, it was Mr. Morality. He told you what was moral. So maybe it's the preacher. Maybe it's your friend. And they'll tell you what is moral, meaning they'll tell you what's acceptable. But, boy, there's a whole lot more than that in Mr. Morality, because maybe Mr. Morality doesn't care anything about the Bible. So maybe you begin to say in your village, well, this is what's going to be acceptable. Well, but that's okay because we've got the law. Mr. Legality is the father of Mr. Morality in John Bunyan's book. And so not only do we do what's acceptable, but we decide what's acceptable by what we have said is legal. And of course, in the Bible, we know what's legal. We have 66 books in the Bible. 66 books. In other words, the Bible is a book, but in that book, there are 66 other books, right? There are 66 individual books. Two of those books are books of the law. Two of them. That's it. Leviticus and Numbers. If you want to find the laws, and by the way, those are the two least read books in all of the Bible. When people get to Leviticus and, and uh, Deuteronomy, it's like they fall asleep, and when they get up, they're ten chapters further in that book than they were when they went to sleep, but they didn't read a single word. Because nobody wants to read the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Now, Deuteronomy is a little bit different. It's got some laws in it. But Deuteronomy is one of those books that's great. Because Moses, who wrote the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because Moses was the one up on the mountain, right? Moses was the one that was hearing God's laws. Joshua was the one writing them down. But Moses was the one hearing the laws. So, in the book of Deuteronomy... Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses just says, let me tell you what I understand these laws mean. All right, so we've got two books of law and one book from Moses that says, now here's what I think they all mean. Here's what I think we're supposed to do. 
great books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but that's two books. That leaves 44 other, or, or uh, 64 other books in the Bible that are about what? The people of God figuring out how to live in a way that puts us in right relationship with God. 64 other books of the Bible. Two of them are the law of the Bible. And yet those two books become the stumbling blocks of so many people on their journey to God. Because people decide they want to live in the village of legality. Now, does that mean laws aren't important? Well, let me, let me ask you something. Does anybody know how many laws we have in the United States of America? Get ready to have your mind blown. In the federal government, they tried in the 1980s to count the number of laws. Now, this is when Ronald Reagan was coming into office. So it was the early 80s. And you remember what the big push was. The big push was, we've got to get a handle on this stuff. <laughs> they couldn't do it. They came close. It was the Justice Department that did this. Essentially, Ronald Reagan came in as president and he said, I want to know how many laws we have in the federal government. There are 51, this was in 1980, 51 volumes to the federal law. To give you a hint of what those volumes in the Library of Congress look like, because they just keep stretching. Uh, when it says volume one, that's not one book. That's volume one, and it fills bookcases of just volume one, not just one book. Just guns. There are 20,000 laws in the federal government for guns. 3.5 million words. That's just the laws in the United States of America at the federal level for guns. Okay, one law, one, one area of law. There's 51 volumes of this stuff. Now, in case you think you can get your mind around something where one group of laws, there are 20,000 of them, 3.5 million words in those 20,000 laws. In Indiana, we don't have near that many laws. We only have 36 volumes. So count, now you're up to 87 volumes of laws if you live in the United States of America and you live in Indiana... And that doesn't count Spencer County. And that doesn't count Santa Claus. And that doesn't count your association if you live in the village. And that doesn't count the Book of Discipline if you're United Methodist. 
And that doesn't count what your mama tells you you can do. Do you get the point? If you choose to, and and we're a nation that prides ourselves on what? We are a nation of laws. Good grief, that is true. You know, here's just an aside, but wouldn't it be wonderful if our Congress decided that one year what they were going to do was not pass a single new law? But they were just going to take the laws that we currently had and figure out how to help us all live better together. Congress thinks their job is to go and pass a new law every time they go. I beg to differ. I think that their job is to go to Washington, D.C. and help us figure out how to live together as people because we're not doing a very good job of that right now. I don't think we need more laws. God didn't leave the Bible open so that we could write new laws into it. But let me tell you what did happen. God set laws down. And let me tell you the most basic, one of the most basic laws, one of the first laws he put down. He said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Didn't he? This day. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, okay, but what does that mean? Well, obviously holy means to be like God, and we know what God did. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh, right? So, we know what he meant by that. He meant that we're supposed to work six days and we're supposed to rest on the seventh. Well, somewhere in there, just like Labor Day, we forgot what it means to rest. And so everybody decided that what it means to rest on the Sabbath is you're not supposed to do any work. Well, why did we decide that? Well, because we saw as we tried to live with God and we picked more manna than we were supposed to for that Sabbath day, it rotted. We worked on it and we were punished. So obviously, rest means we're not supposed to work. Well, if you're going to make sense out of that logically, then what you're going to say is God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested, which means the seventh day God didn't do anything. Really? So God worked six days to create the world, and on the seventh day, he just sat down in his recliner and switched on NFL football. (laughs) That's not what rest means. The rest that is used in, in that portion of Genesis is the same rest that is used when God says to the people of Israel, you're going to go into a promised land, and that is going to be a land of rest. Does anybody think that when the Israelites, the Hebrews, went into the promised land and and the first thing they had to do was begin to fight wars, that that was a place that we would think of as restful? Well, to believe that, you have to believe that going to war is that day that you go, man, that was restful. That's absurd. No, the Hebrew idea of rest where God rests on the seventh day or the Hebrews rest or we take the Sabbath, keep it holy and use it as a day of rest means you dedicate that day to the things that God wants you to do. But that's not what the Pharisees and Sadducees told them that that law meant. That law 
meant exactly what the religious leaders wanted it to mean, so much so that when God himself came back into this world and decided on the Sabbath day that somebody needed to be healed, they looked at God and said, you have broken the law. And Christ is like, I made the law. What are you talking about I broke the law? Well, you healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, if an ox falls in the ditch, you don't pull him out on the Sabbath? Of course you do. Because the Sabbath isn't about sitting in your recliner and watching NFL football or going to the beach with your family. Are all those things good things? Well, it depends on who your football team is. And don't think that I missed it that Stephen Rutherford is wearing a North Carolina shirt in here today, all right? I just want you to know that Randy Fisher has an Indiana mask on, all right? So his Indiana mask beats your North Carolina shirt, man. Oh, it's NC State, okay. Do you get the point? The Sabbath was supposed to be set aside for what's important to God. God worked six days to create, and the seventh day wasn't a day that he kicked back and did nothing. It was the day that he said, now, this is all going to work the way I have planned it to work. That's what it means to rest, to actually be active in the things God wants in this world. And maybe that is to be with your family. And maybe that is to watch your kids play soccer. It certainly is to come together as the people of God and worship God. There's all kinds of things that it can mean. But the Pharisees and Sadducees had, had squeezed it down to the point that in our modern era, when we pass a new law, the joke is, every time we pass a law, all we've done is create a new criminal. You ever heard that? Every time we pass a law, all we essentially do is create a new class of criminal in this world. In other words, all we've done is tell another group of people what they can't do, and if they do that, then they have become criminals to the law. Thus, I say to our Congress, wouldn't it be beautiful? None of them talk to me. But wouldn't it be beautiful if all they did was go and take the laws that we currently have and say, now how can we make these work for each other? You see, we don't need more laws in America. The Bible didn't need any more laws than two books out of 66. By the way, if you're, if you're uh, Catholic, it's 73, and if you're Eastern Orthodox, it's 78. So we as Protestants, we've only got 66. Guys, our job's easier. What Christian learns in this pilgrim's progress towards God because he tries to go live in legality and morality. He tries to live in that village. And the village chokes the life out of him. Because your relationship with God is not based on laws. And it's not based on morality. Does God have laws? Yes, he does. And we've got 64 books that tell us how to live with God. Study them. See what people tried. See what worked. See what didn't work. Talk to me. We'll have conversations about it. 
But for goodness sakes, what you can't do, what Christian found on the road to the celestial city, to heaven, was that if you base your relationship with God on what he says is legal, or what you think is moral, then you will never be able. You can't obey, if you're a gun owner, you can't obey 20,000 laws. And that doesn't count the Indiana laws. And then you're going to carry your gun into Illinois. Better not. Because they don't allow them. You can't obey 20,000 laws. You can't do it. If they want, they will arrest you for something. It's just the way it is. Because laws aren't the things that bind us together in relationship to each other. Do you think about the laws as you live your life today? Only when the police officer pulls out behind you and starts driving, that's when you slow down to five miles under the speed limit. Other than that, you don't think about the laws. You're more concerned with the people. God's not concerned with law. The laws are just there. God has told us, this is the way you live together. Are you going to obey them all? Thou shalt not lie. How'd you do with that this week? Thou shalt not <laughs> want more than what you currently have. How'd you do with that this week? There's all kinds of thou shalt nots in the Bible. Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. How'd you do with that this week? Well, my mom and dad are dead. I don't have to worry about that anymore, huh? No, your life is supposed to honor your mother and father. Did everything you do this week honor the memory or honor your mother and father? Not me. I'm glad my mom didn't see everything I did this week. She'd be like, damn you, you can't live your lives like that. They, they are the guideposts of life that say life is lived with people. And what Christian finds out on the road to the celestial city is it's not about the law, it's about your relationship with Christ. And so I say to those who have begun the journey of a relationship with Christ, you're going to be tempted you're going to be tempted to squarely put yourself within the laws and the morality of Scripture. And God is going to say this phrase, and I printed it in your bulletin. Man was not made for the law. The law was made for man. It was supposed to be there as something that helped us, not something that shackled us. And Christ is going to look at them and it's all about the Sabbath for him at this point because they have told him he has broken his own law. And he has said, you got it wrong. Man was not made for the law. The law was made for man. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would learn this lesson on our journey towards heaven, on our journey towards a relationship with you daily in our lives 
that, Lord, we would know those two books of the Bible that are about the law. We would know what your morality is, what is acceptable to you. But, Lord, that we might live our lives as if we're reading the other 64 books that you gave us. What does it mean for us to be in relationship with you? And, Lord, I would pray that we would do that with each other. What does it mean to love each other? Let us remember that when asked the question, what is the greatest of the laws that you told us yourself to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love each other? Lord, may we remember what you said was important. This I pray in your name. Amen. Please stand. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and I pray this for you. God would give you peace. God is good. And all the time, go in peace. Have a great week. Happy Labor Day, everybody. Enjoy your day. Mm -hmm.